Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. All right. Hello, Behind the Knife listeners. We're so excited. We're going to be back with you for another Clinical Challenges in Colon and Rectal Surgery with the Leahy Colorectal Surgery Team. We have another very, very special guest who is joining us today, and I'm going to introduce them shortly. Uh, to recap our prior episodes, we talked about endoscopic management of advanced colorectal polyps, the role of total neoadjuvant therapy for locally advanced rectal cancer, surgical management of rectal prolapse, the use of biologic medications in patients with Crohn's disease while requiring ileocolic resections. And today, we're thrilled to continue the theme of managing complex Crohn's disease and specifically, we're, we're going to focus on small bowel strictures. And so if you haven't caught the most re recent episode from the Montreal team, uh, it'll pair nicely with ours. And so they dived into the Supreme CD study and discussed the Clono-S anastomosis in their journal club. And so once again with us, we have Dr. Peter West Marcello and Dr. Tess Hannah Alette. Say hi, gang. Hey, team. Uh, great to be back and record our fifth episode of Behind the Knife. Hey, Leahy, missing you all in Burlington. Uh, sad I can't be there in person tonight. We miss you too, Tess. Yes. All right. So today we have a very, very special guest who's going to be joining us. And I'm honored to introduce Dr. Fabrizio Michelassi. Uh, a proper introduction would actually take the entire length of the episode. So I'm going to do my best to give a very brief introduction to someone who doesn't need an introduction. Dr. Michelassi is the Lewis Atterbury Stimson Professor of Surgery and Chairman of Surgery at Weill Cornell Medicine and Surgeon-in-Chief at New York Presbyterian Weill Cornell Medical Center, where I did my general surgery training. Uh, his, his experience and expertise in treating Crohn's disease led him to develop a novel bowel-sparing procedure, now known as the Michelassi Strictureoplasty. And we're certainly going to be discussing the details of that technique during the episode. Hello, sir. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's really a pleasure to be part of this episode of uh, Behind the Knife. Great. So Tess, I think our listeners want to hear what's it like being a junior attending at University of Massachusetts? Yeah, hot under the fire. Yeah, things are good. I love living in the Worcester area. Just bought a house. I got my Leahy diploma up on the wall. I'm, I'm settling in very nicely. Nice. Peter, any updates for our Behind the Knife listeners? Yeah, well, you know, it's fall uh, finally, and that means football, but it also means interview season for the colorectal residents. And we just finished up uh, yesterday, and I love this time of year. I love seeing uh, the applicants come through. They're all excited. I love talking about the program and what they hope to get out of it. Uh, and I'll give you a little secret that if you come and interview here at Leahy, I'm going to ask you about ice cream. <laughs> now, you may wonder what does ice cream have to do with cultural residency? Well, you got to interview here to find that part out. Okay, John, uh, now that I'm all end up, uh, let's go. All right. So like our prior clinical challenges episodes, we're just going to go into one case and really take a deep dive into some complex medical and surgical decision making. And so just a reminder for our listeners, if you like, you can follow along with us on the Behind the Knife YouTube channel. We're going to show some relevant images from the case and then some relevant anatomy. All right, Tess, here we go. So this is a 49-year-old female. She was diagnosed with duodenal and jejunal Crohn's disease approximately four years prior to your evaluation. Her symptoms include postprandial abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting. She has one or two bowel movements a day, 
but her diet is severely limited. She's been on multiple medical therapies and currently she's on infliximab. Her last colonoscopy was performed three years prior and revealed it's a mild erythema in the terminal ileum, but otherwise normal appearing colon. She did undergo upper endoscopy and that revealed disease in the second portion of the duodenum with the tight stricture in the proximal jejunum. Prior to your evaluation, she had an MRE and that showed diffuse focal thickening of the jejunum and relatively narrowing of the post-bulbar duodenum without abnormal enhancement or adjacent stranding. Uh, we obtained an upper GI contrast study before you're seeing her and that uh, with a small bowel follow-through. Uh, and that revealed uh, uh, several small bowel luminal narrowings in the first portion of the duodenum, just distal to the duodenal bulb, the proximal jejunum, just distal to the ligament of trites, jejunum in the left mid-abdomen, uh, and there's some patulous small bowel proximal to that site of narrowing. John, show the next slide. Perfect. Here you go. So some unremarkable fluoroscopic appearance of the ileum and terminal ileum. Uh, and so just a reminder, you can look at some of these images from our, our patient. So you're seeing her in clinic tests. And so she's mildly distended. She has borybergmi with light palpation and is non-tender. So Tess, you're seeing this patient in clinic. What, what are some of your considerations uh, for this patient? Yeah, absolutely. You gave me a lot of really good information there, a lot of details. I think any patient with Crohn's disease, the first thing I want to understand is the distribution of their disease, whether it's small bowel and colonic, whether it's colonic or limited to the small bowel and where it is, which you gave me um, so far. You know, having all of the patient's prior endoscopic reports, pathology and imaging really helps to provide you with that roadmap, which is important. Additionally, I'm thinking about if they've ever had surgery and if they have getting the operative report. So I know how many resections, where they have had the resections, how much bowel do they have left? Um, you know, is this someone that I'm going to be worrying about short gut? Um, and, you know, thinking about different techniques I might be employing uh, at the time of surgery. I want to get prior medication history, what she's tried, what she's on, particularly if she's on steroids. Um, I'd also want to know if she's a smoker and if so would work uh, on smoking cessation. Lastly, I'd try to get a better understanding of the patient's nutritional status, given her diet has been a little bit limited, it sounds. Um, has she lost weight, uh, greater than 10% weight loss over the last three months, use of steroids, smoking, prior colonic or prior bowel resection are all risk factors that, you know, I think about in terms of post-op complications in these patients. Particularly in her, she has duodenal uh, Crohn's, and so this is not a very common thing that we see. Indications to operate would be for fistula obstruction, as it sounds like she has in her case. So as far as how I would manage these uh, strictures, I would be thinking about a plasty or a bypass. And then for the jejunal strictures would depend a little bit more on how close they are to one another and the length of the stricture in terms of how I might surgically approach this. Yeah, and I think you've hit many of the highlights uh, tests to kind of look at. And I'll just say this as sort of the gray hair and for Fabrizio, I want your comments in a minute. But historically, you know, when resection was done for duodenal Crohn's, it had an extremely high complication rate. The, the, trying to resect a duodenum that's inflamed is not easy and it was fraught with hazard. And I guess when I started my training in the late 80s into the 90s, 
the approach was more commonly bypass. Uh, and John Murray, uh, one of our former members here, wrote uh, a seminal paper about Leahy's experience with gastrojuvenal Crohn's and bypass uh, uh, stomach to uh, jejunum for Crohn's of the duodenum and uh, proximal uh, jejunum. But then uh, things changed and authors like uh, Fabrizio and, and Victor Fazio from Cleveland Clinic like to look at other options for a proximal um, a, a small bowel stricturing Crohn's disease. And while I was on staff at the Cleveland Clinic from 97 to 99, the group published uh, their, on their experience with plasty for fibrosing uh, duodenal Crohn's disease. And I actually assisted with the procedures there and then I've done a considerable number of procedures over the years. But I'm curious, Robert, so what, tell us your experience how we uh, approach uh, a complex patient like this with duodenal Crohn's as part of their uh, disease? Yeah, so first of all, Tess, I think uh, really uh, uh, touched on, on the major highlights of this disease. Uh, this is obviously Crohn's disease of the foregut, uh, duodenum and uh, proximal jejunum. It is not as common as uh, Crohn's disease of the terminal ileum and, uh, of the, and, and the colon. As a matter of fact, if you want to put numbers to it, I think that of all uh, patients with Crohn's coming to surgery, probably one to 2% will have a, a duodenal involvement in need of surgery. And probably no more than 10, 11% will have involvement of the jejunum in need of surgery. So you only have about 11, 12% of, uh, of the entire um, uh, cohort of uh, patients coming to surgery. One thing to remember <clears throat> is that this is again, a proximal GI Crohn's, uh, and uh, in the proximal GI, Crohn's manifests itself with fibrostenotic complications. It is very rare in the duodenum, as a matter of fact, uh, almost unheard of, of having uh, an inflammatory mass due to Crohn's disease. In the jejunum, you may have an inflammatory mass of the Crohn's disease, but the majority, again, will be fibrostenosing uh, Crohn's disease. And probably this is due to the difference of microbiome from the upper gut to the uh, lower gut. Mm -hmm. And I agree completely with you, Peter, that uh, uh, surgery on the duodenum has changed dramatically over the decades. Uh, resections were fraught with incredible complications. And uh, then uh, uh, everybody understood that the better thing to do was a, a gastrojejunal bypass. But then with the advances in the stricturoplasties and uh, mm -hmm. actually knowing exactly how to do it and much more confidence uh, in doing stricturoplasties, uh, uh, duodenal strictures can be magnificently handled with stricturoplasties. And uh, the stricturoplasties that you do for first portion and second portion and even third portion of the duodenum is usually hanekemikrix stricturoplasty. For the fourth portion, believe it or not, you can even do a finished stricturoplasty by yeah. uh, putting the, the first loop of jejunum onto the uh, fourth portion of the duodenum. In every single case, you have to do a magnificent and extended mobilization of the duodenum from the retroperitoneum. Otherwise, uh, it's going to be very difficult to do this uh, stricturoplastis. The jejunal disease uh, it can be handled in a different way. It can be handled by a resection or it can be handled by stricturoplastis. And all that depends really on the burden of disease that. Uh, it is, uh, it is present. In this particular case, I think that the two strictures are far enough from each other, one in the duodenum, one in the uh, 
proximo jejunum, the two uh, strict, uh, separate strictoplasties, probably Hanikemikulixa, is what this patient probably would need. Um, but, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about that later, um, you, at surgery, you need to take a, a thorough look at the entire small bowel and intestine, not just focusing on what radiologically has been identified preoperatively. Perfect. And we can talk about that later. Sure. John? That, yeah, I love it. Let's, let's keep the case moving and see what we did. So the plan pre-op was to perform a colonoscopy intraoperatively, then a diagnostic laparoscopy to assess the small bowel and the terminal ileum, uh, and then make an appropriate recommendation. So in the OR, we found a duodenal stricture that was three centimeters from the pylorus, and then four separate jejunal strictures. The first jejunal stricture was about 15 centimeters from the ligament metatrites. The second, the second was then 10 centimeters distal to that. The third was about 15 centimeters distal to that. And then the fourth was about 10 centimeters distal to that one. Each of the strictures were approximately two centimeters in length. Uh, and then beyond this, the remainder of the jejunum and ileum were really unremarkable. And I'll also just mention the colon was also uh, normal. Uh, we did do an upper endoscopy during the procedure and did visualize uh, a bezoar just proximal to the first jejunal stricture. So that's our roadmap. Uh, so Dr. Michalasi, we can pause there and with our intraoperative findings, you know, what are your thoughts about how you would approach that? Well, I think you're making a great point. And the point is that although the uh, x-rays that you've shown uh, showed only two strictures, one in the duodenum and one in the jejunum, it is absolutely mandatory at the time of surgery to examine the entire intestine. And in this particular case, you found uh, three additional strictures. And it is also mandatory to look even more distal because you don't want to miss a distal stricture and do, say, strictoplasties proximally and then postoperatively having other problems in the immediate postoperative period of having a patient that becomes, continues to be symptomatic now for a stricture that you have missed. Uh, in terms of the colonoscopy and upper endoscopy as surgery, uh, you can decide to do it or not to do it. Um, in my practice, I do the colonoscopy prior to the surgery uh, to be a little more uh, uh, expeditious at the time of surgery and to have all the important information that I need. The upper endoscopy may be necessary, may not be necessary, especially if you've done it uh, uh, preoperatively. But in this particular case, therefore, I think that you've identified one stricture in the second portion of the duodenum, which can be taken care of with a strictoplast. And, uh, and then you found the other four strictures in the jejunum. And at this point, I need to ask you, you mentioned it, but I need, I need to remember, how far from each other were these four strictures? Yeah, so all about 10 to 15 centimeters apart. Yeah, so 10 to 15 centimeters uh, is probably long enough to, to do four separate uh, Heineken microxystoplasty or to do a side-to-side isoperistaltic strictoplasty, whatever you feel more confident with and whatever you, uh, you know. The, the goal at the end of the day is to make sure that the intestinal lumen is wide and there is no more partial obstruction. Perfect. I, I agree fully, fully with you about that. And I think here the, the goal is to preserve the bowel also. The, the, these, I think, Small bowel disease, I worry about, you know, resection. And here, a resection would take, you know, uh, two feet probably. And, uh, and I'd like to preserve that. I agree with you. 
that is my my goal here. And and so uh, it was our, our thoughts in this case to probably do Heineken Mikowitz with normal intervening bowel. Uh, if there were more areas concerning but not strictured but diseased, I might have done a long isoperistaltic, uh, but I chose I chose in this case uh, that thoughts. I think that the point that you're making is very important, which is uh, it is easy to do a, a, a bowel resection. Two feet of bowel takes uh, probably 45 minutes, including sure. the anastomosis. But that approach is not cognizant of what we now know about Crohn's disease. And Crohn's disease, in 75% of cases, comes back with the same phenotype. In this particular case, will be there for uh, stricturing disease and with the same length of disease. So if you resect two feet of bowel now, and this patient is young, and she's coming back with another two feet of bowel or recurrence, and then you resect another two feet of bowel, you know, how many two feet of bowel do you wanna resect before you create some problems? Now in two feet, you can say, well, two feet is only two feet. Sometimes you see patients that have strictures over three, four, five feet. And those are really the individuals that if they undergo multiple small bowel, sequential small bowel resections over time are prone to develop a short gut. Perfect. Yeah, I agree. Hey, Tess, can you uh, tell us how, how you're going to assess the bowel distally when you when you see the structures? What, what are your thoughts? What are... Yeah. So like we've kind of alluded to, you want to make sure that you're uh, assessing distally to make sure that you've identified all of the strictures. So with your first enterotomy, you can insert a Foley and pass it downstream, um, you know, blow up the balloon and then pull back and assess for any areas of stenosis. Hey, Tess, you know, don't forget, uh, if you don't uh, want to use the Foley balloon, you can use a metal ball that you can roll up and down the bowel. Uh, Vic Fazio loved the metal ball. Fabrizio, do you use a Foley or you like I, I use a Foley because uh, if you use a metal ball and it gets stuck with the first or the yeah. second stricture, what are you going to do then? Yeah, right. The Foley, if you deflate the Foley completely, the size of the Foley is uh, probably about uh, seven or eight millimeters in yeah. diameter. And at that point, and John knows that because we did a surgery, you inflate the Foley and you know how much you can inflate either water or air to make it one centimeter in diameter, one and a half and two centimeters. So it gives you the flexibility that a metallic ball doesn't give you uh, to, to pass a, a tight structure, measure the next one, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, I like to use the Foley. I always do remember to use a clamp on the Foley, otherwise you're gonna have in your lab uh, or in the uh, in the wound and at that point uh, you you create uh, a, a major contamination but i use the i like it one thing that uh, i'm not sure and i don't think that there really studies is to figure out uh, what is the minimal diameter that you want to you know that you could tolerate you know in the literature you say two centimeters is that really the minimal diameter that uh, if you want to leave a stricture behind uh, that uh, you tolerate? Is it one and a half? Is it one? I, that I, I don't have the answer. Well, well, but don't you think it probably could be less than two, don't you think? Oh yeah, definitely less than two. Yeah, good. I, I certainly um, would not leave a one centimeter diameter. And usually I use my thumb. If my thumb goes, or my finger, if my finger goes through, I think that uh, 
you know. For peace, put put up your thumb for those who are watching. On <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Here it is. All right, John, take over. All right, all right. So we we did proceed with uh, Heineken-Michelet strictureplasties of all five strictures. Um, and so again, if you're following along with us, you can see a picture of our of our case. This is actually remember this case. Peter called me into the operating room to review some relevant anatomy um, and discuss this the, the case. Um, so so Tess, we've talked a lot about different types of strictureplasty. So let's 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 get into it for our listeners. Can you tell us about the different types? Yeah. Sure. So we have the Heineke Miklowitz uh, stricture plasty, well suited for short segment strictures. The Finney and the Jabalay stricture plasty, we think about using for more medium sized strictures, uh, ranging from 10 to 15 centimeters in length. And then lastly, for longer segment strictures, you have uh, the Dr. Michelezi uh, isoperistaltic side to side stricture plasty. Great. Thanks, Tess. So, Peter, uh, you know, so this is your case, um, and and we do a lot of strictureplasty here at Leahy, which you're going to tell us about. Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your tech, uh, your technique, and some tips and tricks? Sure. You know, so I'll just talk about mainly Heineken Mikwitz because I think that's the majority of them. I learned it really from uh, from Vic Fazio and David Schetz here at Leahy, and basically, um, for me, cut across the area of the stricture, tie off the bowel approximately and distally. I like to use uh, a, a soft cloth or, or the parts of the, um, the sponge to, to tie off the bowel, then cut across the area of the stricture. Uh, don't forget to biopsy, endoscopic forceps, biopsy the stricture, make sure you're not missing a malignancy. And then uh, to close from each corner, it's three angles, three stitches, a zero degree straight up and down, a 45 degree angle, right at the area where there's Crohn's and then coming across at 90 degrees. And that's how you kind of make a corner out of it. You start at each corner, uh, one in the middle, and then from each corner, and so back to the middle. And um, I do this routinely, uh, practicing this technique when I close an ileostomy or a loop colostomy. You do the same thing. So every time I'm taking a junior through a closure of ileostomy, I'm preparing them for the Crohn's case. And that's my uh, tip and tricks, except remember when you suture it afterwards, put a clip on it, whether it's an ileostomy closure or a strictureplasty, put a clip so you know where it is at the time of the next x-ray. Great. And so fortunately, we were lucky enough to have Dr. Michalasi join us at Leahy uh, in person a few months ago for a grand rounds. Uh, and he talked to us a lot about the, the creation of the Michalasi strictureplasty. And so uh, I think we here uh, and our listeners, I'm sure, would love to hear about this. So please indulge us if you don't mind. Well, I was confronted, as I told you, when I came to Leahy by uh, extensive and severe uh, Crohn's cases at the University of Chicago when I was uh, in my first um, academic job after uh, residency. And uh, the one that I found, uh, the ones that I found really uh, challenging were patients with uh, jejunal ileal disease with stricture after stricture after stricture after stricture and in between stricture dilated the saccular uh, intestine. And uh, I was always uh, uh, concerned about these patients because although obviously at the level of the stricture you have disease, in between the strictures you have plenty of good bowel. And so why throwing away all that good bowel when really the problem is just a, a luminal problem of a lumen that is uh, too tight? And so I was trying to figure out how to do it, how to do it. It was very difficult to visualize it until finally the story goes that uh, I took uh, 
uh, a shirt with two, you know, the two arms of the shirt, and I put the two arms in a side-to-side -side fashion like this, and all of a sudden, I decided that I could do a very long enterostomy. This strictoplasty, nothing else but a side-to-side enterostomy in an isoperistaltic fashion. And, uh, and you just have to be careful when you do it, because obviously you want to make sure that a stricture on one loop faces a dilatation on the other loop. You certainly want to make sure that uh, you don't have one stricture facing another stricture. But pretty much, if I can show it to you, you know, you got to divide the intestine pretty much halfway in the disease segment. And then you have to move one loop over the other in a side-to-side -side fashion, making sure again that one stricture doesn't face another stricture. And then you create a side-to-side strictoplasty. Now, it is common mistake to think that this is a good strictoplasty for very long and narrow piece of intestine, like a garden hose intestine. It's not good. For garden hose intestine, you just have to do a resection. It is good for a rosary bead configuration of sequential strictures. Yes. That's what it is good for. Now, in the picture that you showed there in the, in the slide, actually, uh, those were my attempts at, um, at doing a, a strictoplastis uh, where the uh, one part of the uh, intestine was really uh, a garden hose kind of intestine. And those, I have to tell you, are very difficult, technically challenging, and probably not worth at the end of the day. I think that the best indication is the garden, is the uh, rosary bead yeah. kind of sequential uh, uh, strictures. Now, when you have two, three, four, five, six feet of bowel, you may have in the middle of it, or at one end, or at the other end, a segment that needs to be resected because it's too diseased and too, uh, and too, uh, 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 deformed. You can do that resection and then use that resection as the point where you start moving one loop over the other, and then you end up doing the same uh, kind of a side to side strictoplasty. These are very good strictoplasties. I recently was able to uh, uh, publish in Annals of Surgery my 25 year um, experience with that, and they're durable. They're durable. Yeah. And uh, one important thing that uh, goes, extrapolates from this case is that sometimes when you have a recurrence on the strictoplasty, either at the either end or in the middle, you can do a honey chemicalics on that. <laughs> so you're gonna do a strictoplasty on a strictoplasty. Yeah. So these are durable thing and these patients require it because they have such extensive Crohn's disease that uh, you need to do, you need to be very inventive on how to, uh, to, uh, to save a bowel. And that's how it came. And uh, uh, the need was to save bowel rather than resecting. Amazing. Thank you so much for that. All right, let's return to our case. Uh, of course, taking care of these patients extends beyond the operating room and doing structural plasties. Uh, so fortunately, this patient did have a, a relatively uncomplicated post-op course. Uh, so postoperatively, we left a JP drain by the duodenal strictoplasty and a nasogastric tube just proximal to this. Uh, we did do a CT abdomen pelvis with PO contrast and post-op day five that showed no extravasation of oral contrast. 
The JP drain remains uh, serosanguinous, and the nasal gastric tube was removed. Her diet was advanced, and she was ultimately discharged home on post-op day nine uh, with a plan to restart her infliximab six weeks thereafter. I will point out this patient did live uh, quite far away, and so we did end up doing a telehealth appointment to check on her. And I, I do remember Dr. Michalassi doing this on, on several occasions uh, you know, during residency before the pandemic. Um, so any, Dr. Michalassi, any comments about you know, the post-operative management of this patient and then post-operative monitoring for these patients? But Fabrizio, let me ask you this. Do you, um, do you put an, leave an NG tube in for duodenal disease? No, I don't. Yeah. So this is the, the, the takeout points, you know, and, and then do you study them afterwards? And if so, when? What do you think? You know, first of all, I don't uh, leave uh, JPs or I don't leave nasogastric tubes. Yeah. And uh, I don't study them if uh, clinically they're doing just fine. Yeah. I, you, you and I and everybody knows that if you have a duodenal leak, it is evident even without uh, studying the patient. Yeah. And if they're doing fine, no leukocytosis, they're fine, they're no tenderness, no, no, you know, at that point, you can just, uh, as a matter of fact, I give them clears uh, the uh, day of surgery. And uh, it is uh, unbelievable how good these tritroplastics are in the, in the duodenum. In terms of following up, and these patients, depending on how old they are, how more extensive the disease is, whether you've done it, mostly laparoscopically or whether you've done it open, you know, they may stay in the hospital from two, three nights to four, five, six nights. It all depends on many variables. The moment that they go home, and this is something that extends to all patients that are discharged, if they've had a totally uncomplicated postoperative period, and if upon, um, at that point, I, I do just telemedicine uh, follow-ups. And uh, either I do them or my nurses do them. And uh, if there is a problem or if the patient wants to come back, absolutely, uh, uh, definitely. But you'll see that most of these patients uh, are absolutely delighted not to come into the hospital, having to drive and having to park, having to pay in New York uh, 30 to $40 for a few hours in the parking lot, then going back, fighting the traffic, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore, at surgery, I do everything possible so that I don't have to do anything post-operative, such as, for instance, all the skin closure is all subcutaneous. I don't have to remove any yeah. stitches. There are no drains. There is nothing that uh, needs, to, needs to be done. And okay. patients are absolutely delighted for that. And actually, also, uh, your staff is absolutely delighted because instead of uh, uh, having your clinic busy with return patients that they don't need much, you leave room available for new patients coming in. No, I agree. I think if these people are going to get into trouble, it'll happen early, right? I mean, it's usually not a, a delayed manifestation. Maybe one good thing we can say out of all of COVID is the ability to do telehealth and save patients' visits. I think it really is, is very yeah. good for everybody. Yeah. yeah. Well, this has been phenomenal. Uh, unfortunately, we're out of time for this episode, uh, and so we're going to wrap up as we usually do with some of our main takeaways. And so Tess is going to kick it off for us. Tess, go ahead. Um, so just have a roadmap for the operating room with all of the preoperative studies that we talked about, and then having a toolbox of different techniques to, to bring into the operating room so that you, again, not one size fits all, have some options going into the operating room. 
All right. So Marcelo must know. For me, I, I think practicing with your residents, suturing the bowel, normal bowel, uh, for an ileostomy closure or colostomy closure, a loop, is a must, rather than just bringing out this paper, because you can practice this technique and they can get very good. And that'll help them when they have the rare case of proximal jejunal or duodenal strictures. And don't forget, put a clip on it. Right? You want to know where it is. Dr. McLossie, any takeaways? Well, first of all, let me thank you all for inviting me to be part of this episode. It's been a lot of fun and uh, it has been great. Uh, second, in terms of takeaways, I would like, uh, I would like to stress uh, the intraoperative roadmap because in about 10 to 15% of uh, cases, you'll find additional disease that was not clear on preoperative imaging, whether it's endoscopic or radiologic. And I think that the roadmap, sometimes for very complex disease, I actually write down the roadmap. I measure the bowel from the ligamental trites, and I, I tell the scrub nurse, write down, please, a stricture at 10 inches, a stricture at 15 inches, stricture, a long segment of disease between here and there. Because eventually, you need to come up with an individualized treatment for each patient. This is not a right colon cancer where you'll do a right hemicolectomy every time the same. These are different uh, presentations and you need to come up with the best possible um, combination of resections limited and strictoplasties for that particular uh, patient. And the final, th final two things, if I may. One is that uh, Always be sure that uh, you really do the full examination of the bowel. You don't want to miss uh, lesions uh, because they may become symptomatic uh, postoperatively uh, if you miss it. And uh, since we talked about staples and hands-on, you cannot do the side-to-side sutroplasty with a GIA staple. That's the most common question that has uh, been asked. Why don't you use a GI uh, a, you know, to do that? You cannot because the, the bowel is so, so thick at times at the level of the stricture that if you fire a GIA, you're gonna fracture that intestinal bowel and either at the time of surgery or a day or two or three later, you're gonna have a major leak. So those are hands-on uh, uh, suture lines. Thank you again for inviting me. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, Abelson's approach, it's already been said by, by everyone before me, you know, stages of the disease, make sure you're, you're taking care of the whole patient and then just different techniques, you know, so we're, you know, Tess and I are earlier in our career. Uh, and so we've learned, you know, from, from fantastic educators along our career, but uh, always be thinking about different ways you can, you can approach uh, disease processes. All right. So with that, we're going to wrap up the episode. And so again, if you like diving into the weeds, uh, consider again, joining us on Sunday evenings for our colorectal surgery, virtual education series. Reminder, we are partnering with behind the knife and now surge on for this education series. Uh, you can check out some of our show notes here for details. And then we're going to see you again in March. We're going to have a journal club review. We're going to talk about local excision of early stage rectal cancer. And just a reminder, please, if you enjoyed the session, take a minute out of your hectic day to leave us a review. And as Behind the Knife always says, until next time, dominate, dominate the, day. the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. 
Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.